welcome to the Naffy Break podcast. I'm your host, Dominic O'Sullivan, and in the time it takes us to drink a cup of coffee together, we're going to talk about the transition from the military into a successful second career. Now, I've had a wide variety of guests on the Naffy Break podcast, but today the transition is very different. The move from the military into politics. We recently had Johnny Ball on our podcast talking about standing up and serving again. Well, this man has done exactly that. And I'm going to ask him about his campaign called Operation Honey Badger. Well, delighted to welcome on to this Remembrance Sunday Naffy Break podcast, Dan Jarvis, uh, Mayor of South Yorkshire, Barnsley Central MP. Welcome to Naffy Break podcast. Good to join you. Well, listen, I'm delighted that you've given up a little bit of time for us, Dan. I know you're a very busy man, and it's been written about your kind of work ethic and relentless time that you put into to your role. Um, but for the benefit of the listeners, let's rewind a little bit, if we could. Young Dan Jarvis, pre, pre-university pre growing up, what were the influences in your life? Uh, twofold, really. One, in terms of politics but also in terms of the military. What was, the, what was going on in your, your formative years that, that kind of influenced that? Well, not a lot in terms of the military. You have to go back some way in, in my family before we could find anyone who was actually served in the army because it tended to be in reserved occupations. But I do remember as a kid very vividly being very interested in the Falklands War and very concerned about our servicemen and women who'd gone down there. And I, I, I will always remember that iconic quote from Brian Hanrahan. Do you remember him? The sort of legendary I do, reporter, indeed. Who was down in the Falklands reporting on the war, talking about counting them out and counting them back in with regard to uh, British aircraft. I just something about him being there, talking about it, counting them out, counting them back in, sparked an interest in, in the armed forces. And although I don't like to admit this, for a long time, I, I was really interested in the Royal Marines. And I thought there's something very impressive about, about the Royal Marines. But I didn't realise the Royal Marines weren't in the army. <laughs> so it, it was something of a discovery for me to find that Royal Navy, uh, the Royal Marines were, were part of the Royal Navy. And then I started to get my head into it and, uh, and learn a bit more. But I suppose the, the influences from a home weren't around the military. Um, they, they were more around public service, about making a difference, getting involved, rolling your sleeves up, knowing that you go off to, to work to do something that you thought was important and made a difference to people. My parents were teachers and uh, and that's what they did. I also think from an early age, yeah, I did develop a love of the outdoors. You know, I used to go on, I didn't always enjoy it at the time, but sort of long, often pretty wet, dreary walks, particularly through the hills of North Wales. And I think whilst, whilst it took a bit to kind of get into that, I think that developed an interest in the outdoors and in outdoor activity that subsequently lent led to mountaineering and climbing and, and doing those kind of adventurous pursuits. And I think those were the sort of the factors that drove me towards considering joining the military uh, in my formative years. Now, I know you went to university at Aberystwyth, 
lovely across there on the uh, in Wales, where I'm from originally, so I know it well. Uh, and through university, was anything starting? Were you seeing any peers or any other, you know, student friends who were considering the military? And is that something that that triggered you, or was it just you know kind of unilaterally? That's that's the route I'm going to go. Well, before I went to university, I joined what was then called the TA. So I joined the, the Territorial Army as a private soldier, 3rd Battalion Worcestershire and Sherwood Foresters Regiment D Company, based in Sherwood. Um, and that, that was a really good experience, sort of soldiering, learning about the army, learning about working with others. Um, and and I, I really enjoyed that. So when I got to university, um, I joined the Officer Training Corps, which was, it was great fun. I mean, it was as much social as it was <laughs> soldiering. Um, we, we, we did do some, some soldiering. We took it quite seriously. You know, many a weekend, uh, while other students were kind of, you know, doing other things that were probably a bit warmer and involved a bit more um, alcohol, we were on the sort of training areas of, of Sennybridge in the Brecon Beacons, in the freezing cold sort of Welsh winters, learning about patrolling and harbour areas and, and doing all of those good things. And there was a real camaraderie that came from that. And the course that many of us were studying was international politics and strategic studies. And it was something that a lot of people did before then going on to join not just the Army, but the RAF and the Navy as well. So there was a group of us um, that were, was really learning about the armed forces. Um, and then many of us, when we when we finished at university, joined up and went our respective ways. Um, but actually, I think that those experiences that time in the OTC was was really valuable. And I, I learned a lot about, about how the armed forces operate. So you decide to join the army, you've, you've gone in and you take a, you take commission, you join a parachute regiment. So, you know, in terms of, you know, that, I suppose all the different cap badges, pretty sought after, pretty prestigious, tough, you know, I kind of know all the stages you have to go through in selection and everything. What changed the most in Dan Jarvis during that process? First thing I'd say is I nearly joined the Gurkhas. I'm a, a massive fan of the Gurkhas. I've been to Nepal many times, and I'm really proud of the relationship that we have with that country. Um, and thought long and hard about the Gurkhas, but in the end, the, the, there was, for me, something particularly special about the Paris. Um, I mean, I, I should say that I'd also thought about joining my own county regiment. Um, but I, 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 I'd say this with, with no malice whatsoever. Um, they, they didn't really want me. And, and I, I, remember, I remember an interview where basically I was told that the, the officers come from Worcester and the soldiers come from Nottingham. And I'd grown up in Nottingham. So my, my, my face didn't really fit in that respect. And that was quite a sort of sobering lesson uh, to, to learn. But I was very impressed with the fact that, you know, the paras, they didn't care where you'd been to school. They were much more interested in whether you could do the job and whether you shared their ethos for the highest professional standards. And it was a very competitive process. Um, and I will always remember the interview that I had with somebody called General Sir Hugh Pike. Now, Hugh Pike had been a sort of fearsome character. He'd, he'd been the CEO of Three Power during the Falklands. And he, he's got these famous blue piercing eyes. <laughs> I remember sitting in front of him. And these, these blue eyes were, were fixed on me. 
And I thought, you know, I'm going to get a proper grilling here. And I did. I did get a proper grilling. And rightly so, because these are big, important decisions. And he was taking a view about whether he thought I'd got the potential to serve in his regiment, command soldiers in his regiment. And they gave me a tough time and they asked me some difficult questions. And then they they, they went away. And then a few days later, they came back and said um, that they would offer me a place in the regiment. And I was incredibly proud to accept that. And that then starts to get you thinking about what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to do P Company. You're going to have to do the jumps. Um, so I think it kind of focused in in my mind the importance of high professional standards, the importance of team spirit, the airborne spirit, um, and you know I'm, I'm I'm really proud that that was the regiment that I opted for, and I went on to have pretty tough times, um, but I look back with despite everything that we went through um, with with the happiest memories uh, and and proud of the things that we did so. Yeah, I look, I look back with, with, with good memories on that period. Now, when I look through your bio, you know, you've said Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Iraq, Afghanistan, Northern Ireland. You kind of look at all those things. And I, and I liken this now to the, the transition where we kind of look at experiences and things that have happened to us that in the future we can kind of look back on and go, actually, I've been in a tough situation. I've been in these things. Nothing's going to be as tough as this. But there's one interesting one that, that came out when I was t- doing a little bit of reading previously in Kosovo. I think when you were serving with, um, there were two, I think two generals speaking to each other, one from your, your boss and, and someone from America. And I think there was a funny little story there about starting World War Three that, um, that stood out to me. Can you, just, you said it was quite a surreal moment. Can you just kind of explain that one a little bit? Well, I can, but full disclosure, I, I should admit that, that at that particular moment, I, I was in a cornfield serving with one para. But in, in that same cornfield or, or, or close by, General Mike Jackson, the uh, legendary parachute regiment general who was in command of all um, NATO forces in Kosovo, was having a very difficult decision with General Wesley Clark who was, let me get this right, Sacker, Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. And and basically, this extraordinary set of circumstances had presented itself in the, completely to our surprise, an an armoured Russian force had driven to the the airport in Pristina and had occupied it. Now, we'd done lots of scenario planning, lots of sort of thought had gone into what would happen when we got into Kosovo, but nobody had envisaged that the Russians would do what they did. So it was an incredibly pressurised moment. Um, And I remember getting a set of orders from my CO, which was like something out of the Cold War, you know, that we will advance on the airport, that we will use all necessary measures uh, to prevent the the Russians from doing this, that and the other. I mean, it was an extraordinary time. And then at the higher sort of um, strategic military political level, there was this conversation going on about what on earth we should do. And that led to this very difficult conversation between Mike Jackson and Wesley Clark, where, as I say, I I, I wasn't there because it was a couple of weeks afterwards when I started working for Mike Jackson. He he had apparently said, I'm paraphrasing slightly, I'm probably being a bit more polite than than he might have been, but basically the essence of it was, I'm not going to start World War III for you. Uh, that That was quite a moment. Um, a quite a tough call for him, but the right one, I think. 
And then when we completed the deployment, it was one of those sort of funny moments in a sense, although it didn't seem that funny at the time, but everyone was desperate to, to get back to, to Aldershot. You know, it'd been a tough few months. People wanted to go and, you know, let their hair down and do the kind of things you do when, when you get home. Um, <laughs> and off everybody went back to Aldershot. And I was told I had to stay behind <laughs> for a number of, of months um, as, as Mike Jackson's um, ADC. So I then immediately went to become his ADC and, and work for him, uh, which was fascinating. You know, he's, a, he's an incredible uh, person. Um, and it was, it was an amazing opportunity to, to work so closely for someone like that. Um, but obviously I was a little bit gutted when I, when I waved all my mates off back to Aldershot and I, and I was snagging on in Pristina for another three months. Uh, are there any kind of comparisons here? We talk about a massively pressurised situation, or like you say, almost like something from the, the Cold War. I'm sure there's going to be a time, or there has been a time at some point, where the people you're working for that are making these massive decisions, you're kind of looking at it going, oh, actually, this is... Um, this is pretty serious. I'm not sure I would make that decision or I might do something, but you are part of a team. You are part, you know, that those, those orders come through and you're going to execute them. Has, has there ever been a time in the future where you look back at that and go, well, if I've been in that situation, then hell, I can do this again. I think it's always important to look back and review decisions that you made and, and, and other people made as well. I mean, that, that was a moment of high drama in that cornfield debating whether we would be, you know, flown forward to either hold or seize the airport. You know, these are, these are big moments in your life. Of course they are. But the truth of the matter is that our experiences in Kosovo, demanding though they were at the time, were, you know, in many cases completely overshadowed by what would come next. You know, the experience of being in Afghanistan in 2007, I mean, that was properly hardcore. Um, and you know, the level of risk, you know, the number of British casualties that we were sustaining on a regular basis. Um, and that was pretty tough for me as the OC because I felt a massive responsibility to my soldiers. You know, I was determined that every one of my British soldiers would come home safely. Well, they all came home. Um, they didn't all come home quite in one piece, but they, they all came home alive. And that's probably the greatest achievement that I've, you know, can, can, can ever point to. But it was, it was hard. It was tough times. Uh, and that was real pressure. You know, the, the summer of 2007 in Helmand was a, was, a, was a terribly difficult time. And as I say, it was, it was hard for me. And there are a number of reasons why it's harder than otherwise it might have been. But actually, it's hardest for the blokes, the young soldier for whom this is the first time in operations, you know, the 18-year-old relatively recently out the depot who finds himself in southern Afghanistan. That is real pressure because he hasn't got you know, the years of experience to draw upon. Yeah, sure. I, I think, I think the, the, the point that I would just add on to that is, you know, I, I think those of us who've had the privilege of serving, we're quite lucky in, in some respects because we've done these things. And what that gives us is a sense of perspective, a judgment about whatever else comes the other side. And, you know, I'm, I'm in politics now and there's all sorts of shenanigans and all sorts of stuff happens but in the end, nothing will ever be as bad as the summer of 2007. So I sort of try and channel that in a positive way and draw strength from it. And I think this is why it's really important to champion those who've served to civilian employers. Because I think the overwhelming majority of people who leave the military have got a huge amount to offer. 
because they bring with them a whole series of transferable life skills. They can get things done. They can be part of a team. They're leaders. They're determined. They work hard. They, they think about the problem. They come up with a plan and they just get on with it. And there isn't that fuss and nonsense that sometimes you get. So I, I know that for understandable reasons, quite often conversations are had around the difficulties that people experience. And it's really important to think about those because it is a big jump that people have to make from the military to civistry. But I also think it's really important that we acknowledge that, that many people who leave the military go on to be really successful. And what, what I always want to do is, is champion to civilian employers, you know, the value and the importance that people who've served can, can add to, the, to their business or their organisation. Well, absolute sentiments that we try and, you know, promote obviously through, through NAFI break. Let's just kind of move on to your transition because obviously those experiences kind of shape you, you know, whatever stage of life you get to when you're still in the service, they will influence. Um, you made the decision then, and you talked earlier on about public service and kind of the willingness to do that. What was, what was the pull? What was the pull into politics that, that happened for you? It, it's a sad story. Um, terribly sad story. My, my wife died of, of, of cancer. So I had to take a decision about whether I was going to continue to soldier in the way that I had previously. I got two small kids. You know, I'd taken a lot of risks in the army. And I had to sort of take a view about realistically, was I ever going to expose myself to those risks again? Um, I just didn't think it would be the right thing to do, not least for my kids, but potentially for the people that I'd be serving alongside. So I thought, having done 15 years, that it was it was the right moment to think about something else and, and the next challenge. But I think when you've you've been in the military and you've you know you've really enjoyed it um, and you've made the most out of it, it's quite an important decision to think about what you're going to do next because that that, that bar has been set quite high. Um, so I, I you know I had a long hard think about what I was going to do and I'd always had an interest in politics and for me there are many differences between the military and politics but there is there is a golden thread which is around service. Um, they talk about this a lot more in the States than they do in, in, in the UK, but it is about service. I, I joined the army because I wanted to serve. I wanted to make a difference. And it's exactly the same reason why I became a member of parliament, because I, I wanted to serve and I wanted to make a difference. I couldn't do it in the way that I had previously. Um, so I wanted to find another route. And politics and being a member of parliament felt like it might give me that opportunity. And and it has. So I'm I'm really proud that you know, I serve, but in a different way now. Now uh, we had Johnny Ball on the um, on the podcast a couple of weeks back with his stand up and serve again campaign, and you were name checked on that as uh, uh, during his podcast. Um, but he talks about normal people, people who served, you know, police, nurses, our military, becoming, you know, public servants, and the, and the sexy end being, you know, politics, members of parliament. Um, but he was he was saying, you know, there are people, and we we chatted on the pod. Some people will raise their eyebrows, roll their shoulders, and say, "It doesn't matter who I vote for; they're not going to make any difference." And they almost there's an apathy uh, about that. But we we're saying, look, if we want better politics, we need better people. And and you know, he, he name checked yourself, and obviously Johnny Mercer and, and various others, etc. But you're pulling to you know an extension of service that that you've gone into here. But you kind of bucked a few trends as well, because I know that, you know, you were the, I think, the first non-Yorkshireman to be voted in at Barnsley Central and to win that seat. Um, 
I know it was a bit of a heads and tails in one of the kind of final rounds to get through. I kind of saw that that point. But the whole process of entering politics, as you know, having come out of the, the military, what was the biggest surprise for you? Because this is your transition. You know, some people are going into, you know, I might go into a regular kind of job, I suppose. But what were the main differences for you that you had to adapt to and, and get your head around quickly? I think that the main difference was that I'd come from an organisation. Um, it's quite a sad thing to, to have to say, really, that, that you know, the, the military is very collegiate. You know, you've got that sense of team spirit. People look out for each other. There is that trust. You know, if you're serving alongside somebody in your regiment or unit, you know, you know that there might be moments where your life is in their hands and vice versa. And that 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 is unique. There isn't another walk of life that really breeds those same levels of, of trust and respect. And I miss that because it doesn't exist in politics in the same way. You've got, you know, people in the same party and you know, people working together on, on different issues. And obviously that's how it should be. But it isn't as um, collegiate. Um, and, and you don't get that quite that same sense of, of team spirit that, that I really valued in, in the military. And I, th- I think that that is a great shade. And I do miss that. Very sadly, the other day I was at a funeral um, of, of my soul major, absolutely brilliant bloke. And I went back for the first time in quite a long time um, in, into an army barracks because there was um, a reception ahead of the funeral. And for the first time in a long time, I was surrounded and amongst soldiers. Um, and it was its quite a sobering experience because it just reminded me what it was like. And it reminded me how much I enjoyed being around those kind of people, you know, people that you really trusted, people who you know had your back and you had theirs. Um, and that's that's the main difference that I'm afraid, you know, politics is, um, I say it's necessarily kind of doggy dog, but it is a fiercely ambitious and competitive environment where sometimes some people put their own egos and their own agendas above the greater good. Um, and I think there's a lot that we can take from the values and standards, the ethos of the military into public life. And in politics, and that's why I think it's really important. And by the way, Johnny Ball, who's a great bloke, is doing a really important job of getting people who've served to think about whether they could make a contribution in politics. Because I, th- I think, by and large, you know, people with our backgrounds, they've got a lot of useful life experience, and they're actually quite good at doing these jobs in politics um, because they've got all of the right characteristics. But there are many reasons why people would never consider sort of stepping forward. So I think John is doing a really important job in focusing people's minds and thinking about how we can get more people into politics who've got really credible professional service backgrounds. Yeah, I, I kind of want, yeah, I just want to jump in on something that you said there a moment, just circle back a little bit. Because when you're saying, you know, the major change coming out, you had that camaraderie, that tightness, that trust in the people around you. And I've heard it from plenty of people who, who've transitioned to say, you know, they struggle to find a purpose. They, you know, they don't have the same teamwork ethic. People don't, they're not like them when they go into a civilian organization. How much of this is accepting that that is the case amongst civilians if you're going into a workplace? rather than it becoming a real frustration? Because I can imagine for some people that just want it to be, re- they want it to be like it was, and it just isn't going to be like that. Do you think that is a little bit of an adjustment and a kind of self-awareness that that maybe people leaving the service need to make? 
I think that is a really important point. Yes, I, I think that we have to accept that when you, when you leave the military, you are entering a different world. And that different world, that different workplace does things in a, in a different way. Um, and, and, you know, there are some fan, fantastic employers out there. There's some amazing jobs and there are some workplaces that are really inspiring, dynamic places to be that do things in a different way in the military. So I think, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of process of adjustment that people do have to go through. But I think that's why it is really important that people, when they're thinking about leaving, and certainly when they are leaving, they think very long and hard about what is it that they want to do. Because yeah. if you've been in a world that is quite high octane, that gives you, you know, a lot of professional challenge and fulfilment. I think, I think the risk is, uh, and I've spoken to a number of veterans who have experienced this, that the risk is that it's never the same and never quite as good the other side. Now, that there are, as I say, there are some wonderful opportunities and lots of people go on to thrive and prosper. But I think you do have to accept that, you know, you, your place of work will be different. Now, some people continue to serve in the reserves so that they, they retain that connection through yeah. the reserves or through um, veterans networks and they retain that contact. So even though you know, their working environment is a bit different, you know, on a regular basis, they'll meet up with their mates or, you know, they'll be a member of the British Legion or whatever it might be. So they still have that contact and that camaraderie. Now, you, you were telling me a, a great story earlier on about how, you know, when in a garage, you realised that somebody else was a veteran. And then somebody else said that they were a veteran as well. And in, instantly, there, there is that connection. Um, and I think um, people do have to accept um, that there won't necessarily be quite that same connection that they've enjoyed previously. So you have to kind of sort of find another way of, of, of kind of, um, of, of maintaining that connection through different ways, if that's what you want to do. Also, you, you do have to adjust, you know, the, the world is yep. different outside the military and, and you have to kind of adjust to it. Totally. Well, I'm, when I'm reading some of the, um, you know, some of the backstory and things about yourself, you kind of seem like you've brought that fighting spirit from the military and you're going to stand up for the people of obviously Barnsley Central. And and one funny thing that kind of come across my mind was when you named your first campaign, I think, was the Honey Badger. Now, for yeah. those that don't, don't know what a honey badger is it's basically a cute looking thing but fights like a dog and, and can fight against lions and so on what where's that come from do you, do you kind of feel like your purpose now in politics and for the people of Barnsley Central you are you know you are fighting on their behalf is why did you how did you come about that name in the campaign that what was the moment when you went that's me well Operation Honey Badger, as it was called, was, was a demonstration of our commitment that we were going to work hard and that we were we were in it to win it and that we weren't mocking about. You know, it's a very difficult time when I fought a by-election. It was the high to the expenses scandal. And politicians, you know, politicians are never popular, are they? But they were even less popular um, because of the expenses scandal. So, and I, I, I was fighting, the by-election had been triggered because the previous MP had fallen foul of the expenses regime. So basically, Honey Badger was our demonstration that we were that we were going to give it everything that we possibly had, and we did. And I think you know, the, I, I, I'm there to fight for my constituents. You know, I am their champion, and that is the responsibility that I carry very heavily. So every single day, 
I do the best that I can for them to secure their interests. And, you know, we've already nodded to it earlier on. There's a lot of people who sort of say, you know, it doesn't make a difference who you vote for. They're all the same. And they, and they don't engage in, and they don't bother. I, I don't think that that is right. I, I don't accept that we are the same. We're, we're not all the same. Um, that there are members of parliament um, on both sides of the house who are absolutely committed to serving their constituents, who give everything that they have to it. And the reason they do it is not for what they can get out of it, but for what they can put into it. And I want to be one of those people and sort of demonstrate to my constituents and to others that, that I will do everything that I possibly can to secure their interests. And I think... It's easier in in, in one sense, because if you've been in the military, that stand you in quite good stead, because I think that there is this this reverence, rightly, amongst our sort of society for people who've served. And I think that gives you a credibility in politics, which you need to think about how to use, because you need to use it wisely. You can't take it for granted. Um, But what I'm trying to do is, is kind of bring that ethos, that determination from my previous job into my current one and and that's the approach I I seek to take. Now Dan a critical point here I think because when people are serving and I take my own experience here um, you're away from home maybe not the city you grew up in and you're away and there isn't necessarily a connect certainly to local politics in the area you're serving sometimes but then when you leave you're now back in a community you are you know all the things that affect the local citizens now affect me, whereas almost a little bit detached from that when I was in the military. What do you see with with veterans either coming back to Barnsley Central or or people who've settled in Barnsley Central? Do you see any particular veteran challenges that ultimately you want to pick up the challenge for and and kind of see those things um, improve? Yeah, so, so the, there are a number of sort of specific challenges as part of the process of people embedding themselves in, in in a community in a way that they haven't done previously. I mean, there's some very practical issues around housing, um, around healthcare, around education, employment, and actually sort of find, finding the job. I, I think, though, you know, the, the, there's something also about getting involved with the local community. I mean, if, if you're in a forces environment, you're a part of that community. You know, if you live, you know, in the Mary Quarters, you know, your neighbours are people with whom you know because because they serve. And it's then different. You then find yourself in a street surrounded by people that you probably don't know doing a range of different things. Um, I mean, I've had some really good conversations with veterans recently who've, who've, who've come back, having been away for a number of years. Uh, and they've, you know, really positively rolled up their sleeves and mocked in and, and, and joined local organisations and volunteer doing things or you know coach the local football team or whatever it might be and and what they've said to me is that they have found that a really useful way to to kind of make friends and and contacts within that local community so I think you know I would certainly encourage people um you know when they find themselves settled in an area to get out and about and sort of chat to people locally you know there, there are veterans networks which were a really good starting point but I also think you know push out of those kind of sort of groups and and, and get to get to know other people um look at what activity is happening locally and, and, and get involved um because I think you know we, we we leave with a range of skills and some of those might be employed in, in the jobs that we do 
But actually, because of the nature of our experiences, we can get stuff done at a local level. So getting involved in a community group, you know, supporting the local kids football side or whatever it might be, I think can be a really rewarding thing for people to do. And it also kind of gives them that kind of link to that to that community that they've now settled in. So I think you know, most, most people do make a success of that. But I think the people who are really successful are the people who kind of accept that, that, that life is different now and they're going to have to be a bit different uh, and they integrate with those communities and they get to know people locally. And Dan, while your circumstances as you know, going into politics may be different to some, you've gone through that transition. I know you relocated your family up to, to Barnsley. You've done all that. You've got the kids into school, all that kind of thing. So it, it proves it can be done. And, and I don't think rank is any determiner of success here, by the way. I think, you know, that and, and or whether a transition goes well is no, no uh, determination by rank either. If you look back now on your transition from the military and, and I suppose, you know, with, with just best we can say what went well what didn't go so well is there anything you think that while you were still in the service or preparing to leave that you would have probably got a better handle on or would have planned is there anything that kind of slipped through the net when you were planning your own transition well my, my transition was a pretty extraordinary one in, in that it happened incredibly quickly um uh, the army w- was very helpful and very supportive but i so i was discharged from the army at midnight on the 3rd of March, and elected to Parliament an hour later. So I, I only had a sort of an hour, basically, as, as a sort of a CV without, without a job. I think, in the end, it, it's probably like most things. It is about prior preparation and planning, and we know what that avoids. Um, so I think, I think mapping it all out, the, the big decision is about what you're going to do. Because, as I say, you've come from something that consumes your life. So you need to think really carefully about what it is you want to do. What's the thing that's going to get you out of bed in, in the future? And I think that, that's a really important judgment. I also think, and, and you know, apologies if this is a bit of a kind of a sort of a technical point, but I think getting your finances sorted out is really important. You know, there's a lot of conversations I've had with with um, soldiers who've, they're, they're, frankly, they've just been a bit lax and a bit relaxed about the personal finances. Um, you know, they probably haven't thought about necessarily what, what the pension's going to give them in X amount of years' time. They haven't necessarily done a sort of financial forecast of what money is going to be available to them. If you're going to be paying a mortgage, this is what they're getting, this is what they're going so, so those kind of sort of number-crunching financial projections which might sound a, a bit of a boring thing to do, but it's actually incredibly important because what, what the military does provide is a pretty useful safety net. So that the, the military, you know, will, will be there, will feed you, clothe you, um, give, give you give you somewhere to live uh, a lot of the time. Uh, and that safety net goes to, to, a, to a big extent uh, when, when you depart. So making sure that you've done the planning making sure you know what you're going to be doing, where you're going to be living, what money you've got available, all these sort of things. They're quite basic things, but there's a lot of people that I know who, who've sort of slightly kind of taken it all for granted and, and not sorted all, all of that out. So I think it is just about being organised and, uh, and planning, and that will ensure the sort of smoothest possible transition. Uh- Dan Jarvis, listen, I really appreciate you coming on the Naffy Break podcast. I think you give us some fantastic little nuggets there and, and your own experience as well. But but also the the honey Operation Honey Badger. I, I can see that passion and purpose in you to to kind of stand up for your constituents. So um 
So thank you very much for coming on the Naffy Break podcast. It is my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was said recently on this podcast, for people who are frustrated with politics in this country, it's not the politics they're frustrated with, it's the politicians. And what we really need is better people in politics. Well, I think today's guest in Dan Jarvis highlights good people. And let's hope that more and more good people will decide to enter the political arena. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Naffy Break podcast. Tune in for another great episode next week. And please like and share to anyone with a forces connection. Bye.